I want to talk just a little bit about Christmas. It's, uh, you know, this time of year, it's, there's just so much Christmas going on. It's one part religious, one part uh, economic, <laughs> one part everything. And, and so kind of just wanted to throw some things out there and then see where we go with it. But Christmas, uh, the word Christmas, the phrase Christmas, actually comes from Christ Mass. So it, the church, and it's kind of a, a false thing to say when you're talking about the Middle Ages or whatnot, um, it's kind of a weird thing to, to say the Catholic Church, because frankly, until the 1500s and the Reformation, there just was the church. So if you were in the Middle Ages, you wouldn't have said the Catholic Church, you would have just said the church. Um, and until, in some sense, the Reformation came and reformed a lot of things, you had kind of these two major strands that we call now Catholic and Protestant. Um, but the church, on Christ's birthday, on Jesus' birthday, when they celebrated Jesus' birthday, uh, would do Mass. And it was the Christ Mass, uh, the, mass on Christ's, the Mass on Christ's birthday. And, and in the 1300s, that phrase becomes kind of one word. It gets coupled together for the first time as one word as Christmas um, Christ Mass. So from the 1300s, you have that. Um, from the 1500s, you have something really interesting. Have you guys ever seen this? You guys ever seen that? I remember being in, uh, thank you, I remember being in high school and being around some really angry Christians that were like, their whole reason for being was against this right here, uh, which is a really interesting thing. The from the 1500s, you used to see this abbreviation, but the, the Greek chi and the rho, which is uh, like our R, okay, um, was a substitute for the name of Christ. So in Greek, you would have had um, is that showing up? Okay, the, the sigma in the, the word looks like a sigma. At the end of a word, the sigma looks like an S. But you would have had Jesus' name and transliterated the chi is C-H. Okay, so that's uh, abbreviation, how they would abbreviate. So this, the chi rho is, is the first three letters of Jesus' names, uh, Jesus' name. And they would use that as kind of shorthand to abbreviate for Christ. And so dating all the way back to the 1500s, you have this abbreviation kind of substituting in. So if, if you have relatives that have made their whole reason for being uh, Christians to be against Xmas, there's better causes in the world. <laughs> there, there, really, there really are better things you can do. Um, you know, the, the mistletoe comes from the Druids, so that's kind of funky. Um, Yule which was kind of the season around Christmas, which was kind of the pagan, secular, seasonal holiday, kind of got co-opted, and, and that's kind of a, an interesting thing, and, you know, that kind of works its way in there. The Christmas tree, you guys know what, what the deal is with the Christmas tree? It's an interesting thing. There's, there's a lot of different strands, and so you can't put them all together into one kind of thing, but the Christmas tree tradition that we have dates back to Luther, actually, in Germany, um, coming in in the Protestant Reformation. So again, you had the church, and, and all of a sudden you're reforming that church, and you're trying to differentiate and distinguish yourself from that. And so Luther was the first to uh, supposedly bring the, the tree in and decorate it. 
decorate the tree. Uh, as a different way of kind of putting out decorations than the Catholic nativity scene. And so, you know, the 1500s, Luther's kind of where the legend of that decorating the Christmas tree comes in. Interesting thing in America is uh, this, is a picture of, guess who? Not Charles Dickens. Uh, it's Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. In 1940, or 1848, this was a woodcutting in uh, England, and in 19, uh, 1850, uh, the Godey's Ladies something or other magazine, whatever, takes this woodcut. They took the mustache off of Albert and the crown off of Victoria to make it seem more American, and they circulated this. And more than anything else, so it's kind of like uh, the celebrities of today, how they set trends. You know what I'm saying? Like, you start combing your hair forward in the direction it's not supposed to go, and then a bunch of junior hires start combing. You know what I'm talking about? Like, well, the royal family, and you didn't have as much news going on, didn't have the internet, um, were the trendsetters in some sense, even, though, even over here in, in uh, America. And so you see this woodcutting. Where was Prince Albert from? Take a guess. Germany. I'm 90% sure. Don't, don't fact check that, but I'm pretty sure that he's from Germany uh, or had like a distant relative from Germany. Um, but so this shows up in 1850. By 1870, this was now kind of a dominant tradition in America. So it, it literally kick-started in America kind of the decorating the tree thing. Okay, kind of interesting, huh? So that's kind of where we get kind of the Christmas tree thing coming from. There's other cool stuff, well, interesting stuff that goes on with Christmas. One of the ones that, that's the most interesting to me is the idea of angels singing. I listened to a whole sermon from a, a pretty scholarly guy on this one time. I won't bore you with it. But if you look in Luke, you'll see something that, that appears very different than the way we kind of celebrated in our Christmas plays and things like that. But you know how the host of angels shows up and sings? You know what I'm talking about? The shepherds are out there at night. The angels show up and sing. It sounds like the choir. Right? Okay, no. Let's read it in Luke uh, chapter 2. Luke 2, verse 8. Here's kind of the narrative of, of Christmas. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. By the way, this is one of the reasons why we know that, that December 25th probably wasn't the real birthday of Jesus. Um, because you have shepherds living out in the fields, which uh, in the middle of the winter wouldn't have been where they were living, wouldn't have been how they were doing it. Um, I just ruined Christmas for you, sorry. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to say that. Um, anyway, Sorry. All right, so they're living in the fields uh, nearby. Verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, the shepherds, and they were terrified. That's the right response if you come really into the presence of God. When, when the Holy One of Israel really shows up, that's, that's really what ought to happen. You get a little bit like, whoa. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a, find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. 
And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, saying, glory to God in the highest. If you turn to Revelation, Revelation chapter 5, you see something a little bit different. I'll read the whole thing here. So Psalm five, or Revelation chapter 5, starting verse 6, you see this. Then I saw a lamb that's representative of Jesus uh, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. This again is kind of this apocalyptic prophecy. And he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits that God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers, stand for the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then it says this, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They circle the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory forever, forever and ever. So interesting thing about Christmas, we we get a picture even in the angels showing up of, of this kind of strange... Now and not yet. This, this dichotomy between, between what's going on with Christ's coming and what he's beginning and the fact that it will, will not be in some sense consummated till, till the end. And the angels say here and they sing over here. And, and I want to kind of take that and come back um, and that's where we're going to go this morning is that dichotomy and kind of really where we can grab onto the heart of Christmas. Because I'm not a big fan of being against things just because they're not 100% the way we would want them to be. Like Christmas isn't 100% purely religious. Well, the Super Bowl has nothing to do with religion. And I eat crazy amounts of chips. You know what I mean? Like I still watch the Super Bowl and enjoy it. You know, and, and things really have to do with where your heart's at in the whole deal. And Christmas really has to, has to do with, to the degree that you either celebrate it or don't celebrate it, whatever you do with it, what's really going on is in your heart where you're at with God keeping the main thing the main thing. Okay, does that make sense? Keeping the main thing the main thing. And the main thing of Christmas really is remembering that the lamb was slain for us, that Jesus came and died for us. So this idea of communion, 
what we call communion, what they called mass back then before the Protestant Reformation, what we call the Lord's Supper or communion, okay, that's really at the heart of it. And so we're going to do something later on this morning at the end of the service that we've never done at Antioch. Uh, at Antioch, we, we choose, and I think there's a lot of room for a lot of different styles. We feel like this one is a, a really faithful representation of, of what uh, communion, the Lord's Supper, is and, and was coming out of the Old Testament Passover. It's an extension of the Passover where Jesus just changes kind of what we're looking back to. Does that make sense? Um, so what we do is we celebrate that four times a year in the evenings with these praise and worship kind of communion nights. Well, this morning we're going to take communion as a church, uh, if you choose. The first time we're doing it on a Sunday morning because that is at the heart of what Christmas is all about. It should be at the heart. Whenever we're talking about God breaking into this world, sending his son and, and redeeming us, the great news uh, the, uh, of great joy used great twice. Good news of great joy for all the people. That, the gospel, is pictured in this whole thing that we call communion. So we're going to take communion later on in the service. And so uh, we'll see how that goes, actually. It'll be interesting. So the first thing I want to do is, is this. It's really the heart of, of what I want to do this morning. Is I want to attack attack a misunderstanding that at the heart of how we understand God. And the misunderstanding is this. Maybe we can show John 3.16 real quick. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave. Uh, he didn't just take somebody else and redirect them. He gave his only son. Now, we read this verse and we jump immediately to the love that we see in the New Testament with Jesus. Jesus is love. The New Testament's all about love. And we miss something that's going on here that God in his love, coming out of the Old Testament, does this to inaugurate the New Testament. We can go ahead and get rid of that verse. But here's the misconception. Tell me if you've ever heard it. The God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. And the God of the New Testament, or Jesus in the New Testament, is a God of love. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever felt that? That in the Old Testament, God is a, is a drunken Irishman who's, who's just going around angry, and, and you just don't want to get in his way because he's a God of wrath, and lightning bolts are shooting every which way, and there's a lot of fear and this is the kind of fear that uh, you have when you just, somebody's erratic and there's a lot of danger that comes with that and, and you can't figure out what's going to trigger them. And so you just try and steer clear of, of the angry gods. The gods must be angry, right? And this is the God of the Old Testament and it's a God of wrath and it's kind of a scary deal. But thank God I don't know which God we're thanking because it, obviously not the God of wrath, but thank God that the New Testament, when Jesus comes, looks a lot different. It's a God of love. And so let's just zero in on Jesus. Let's lop off the Old Testament where all that anger resides, all that wrath, and let's just realize that we've now finally reached, arrived at love 
um, it's wonderful that we, we don't live back in the Old Testament. That's a, a really common misconception. It's so common that if you're sitting down with somebody that's not a Christian, I have this experience when I'm talking to atheists all the time. You sit down, and that, that comes out right away. God of Old Testament's a God of wrath. You know, Jesus might be a God of love. But hey, you have to, you have to defend that this is your religion. And then what, what, what usually happens with most Christians is they kind of sheepishly roll their shoulders and say, yeah, God really was scary, dude, wrathful in the Old Testament, but, but that's past. And, and let's just talk about Jesus. It's a misconception. Let me explain to you something about wrath. Let's just read, actually, a couple passages, and then we'll, we'll get into a little bit more. But as a dad, um, I've begun to learn this a little bit more. The prophets come. God sends the prophets to speak on his behalf. So there's this distance, and, and he's sending his emissaries, in some sense, to represent him and to explain his wrath, to explain it. Why, why is it there? What is it directed towards? What's really going on? He's explaining it. And what we see is this. Um, uh, my wife's not here. None of my kids are in here, are they? Grandma, Grandpa? I don't think... My, are you back there, Grandma? I don't think any of my kids are in here. We had a dog that... This is a different dog story. We had a dog that uh, started biting people. And there was a, there was a, a day where we, you know, so it came in stages and we just started trying to keep the dog locked up and kind of behind doors and all this. Well, one day the dog got out the front door, ran right across the street to where a bunch of kids were and, and bit a kid. Um, and uh, so I came home from work. Tamara called me. I said, take the kids, put them in the car, drive to Primeville, go get a dog. That's how we ended up with peaches. Um, so, so I took this dog, uh, Molly, took her to the pound and said, listen, this is what's, ha- you know, this is what's happened. And uh, I've got kids. Uh, I got to bring in this dog. And they looked at me and they said, uh, we can't place a dog like that. We're going to euthanize it. You know that, right? And I said, yeah. Um, and the dog's just looking up at me. You know, I'm the master, you know, and, you know, what's going on? We're on a road trip. Isn't this great? Um, it was literally, I don't, I don't feel a lot of emotion all the time. That was one of the most difficult things I'd ever done. And I came home. My kids came back. Um, and they, they knew that I was taking Molly somewhere. What, what happened to Molly? Molly's at a ranch where there's lots of room and, and not, not any little kids that she can bite, and she's really happy. We, my daughter asked me last night, like, some people were over watching fighting. She's like, Dad, do people get hurt in fighting? Oh, no. They just act like they get hurt. It's creative lying, right? Um, so Molly... So put Molly down, right? Well, there's some times that Molly was about to bite kids, and, and, uh, and you know what, what I would do? I would come in with wrath in those moments to try and get that dog off of hurting those people 
um, would just fly in and nothing mattered. All my focus, my energy, my anger, my frustration would be against what was going on and against the dog to help the people. If you're a dad, you know this, if you, if you feel like your kid's getting bullied, like you can shoot an evil eye to a third, three-year-old. It doesn't matter how, like, I mean, three, you know, you think it's like innocent at three, but if that kid's bullying your kid, like, I mean, you're just shooting an evil eye, like that kid. <laughs> My wrath is against you. I don't care if you're still in diapers. <laughs> like... All my anger is on you because you're, you're, you love something. You love something, and this thing is injuring that something, and you direct your wrath, your anger. Your anger leads to wrath, but it's all about protecting the thing you love. Do you understand what I'm saying? Um, I, I use... My body, like, I'm very expressive. And so we were in Costco the other day, and, and Tamara was at a distance. And, and sometimes I do this. Like, she can't hear me, or she's in the car, and the windows are rolled up. And so I'll try to communicate, even though she can't hear me. So I use body language to try and communicate. Um, contort my face. I don't know, whatever. She came over to me. We're in Costco. She goes, you cannot do that. She's <laughs> like, if somebody saw you right now, like, what they would assume of you. You're like this horrible guy. Like, it's like, you can't do that. So I'm like, oh, just, you know. And it's Costco, and you know, in Prineville, you see everybody you know in town, right? So she's like, you can't do that. All right, Isaiah 1. The prophets come. Isaiah begins, and it's going to be a theme all through the book of Isaiah. It's explaining, in some sense, the judgment of God, the wrath of God against his, his people. And we always assume that the prophets come and say, your daddy's angry, and he's going to beat you. He's, a, he's an angry, wrathful God. You know, um, someday, though, there'll be Jesus, and Jesus is nice. He'll be nicer to you. That's not really what's going on here. It says, God is saying, look, I hate when you act religious. Stop bringing me meaningless offerings and stop laying out your hands in prayer. and Stop acting like you really care about me. Stop acting like you're following me. And he says this, when you spread out your hands in prayer, verse 15 of chapter 1 of Isaiah, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you, even if you offer Many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Because your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. And plead the case of the widow. Isaiah 58, one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. says this about fasting. You're fasting. You're seeking me. You act like you're trying to talk to me. You want me to bless you. You want me to buy you a new car. You want me to buy you a new bike for Christmas. You want 
all these things. You're, you're like coming to me. You're asking because I am your father. I'm God. But I hate it. I don't want it. Because his fasting, his praying, is doing this, is it not just for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in, on sackcloth and ashes? Is it just contorting yourself and acting religious that, that prayer is to you or fasting is to you? And, and God says this, verse 6 of chapter 58, Is this the kind of fasting I have chosen? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? This is what I mean by looking religious. To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? And when you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. He's, he's saying there are people that are in need. There are people that are hurting. There are people that are on the bottom of the pile. And you are supposed to. You're responsible. You know that my commands were for you to take care of these people. And you're not doing it. You're ignoring it. And you're talking to me. And you think we're going to carry on and have a relationship. And you don't understand that I care about these people being abused or that are left vulnerable. And so I am angry with you. And it will lead to my discipline, my wrath on you, so that you might learn that I love all people, not just the rich, not just the well-to-do, not just the powerful. I love these people so much that I am willing to discipline you so that someday everybody will be taken care of. All my children, all my family will be okay. God is not a, maybe all you needed to hear this morning, God is not a drunken Irishman. I've got Irish in me somewhere, so it's not a prejudice thing. I'm just trying to say it so you remember it. Anne's going to kill me. God, God does not walking around having a bad day. God is not a God in the Old Testament that you have to kind of feel sheepish about and kind of feel guilty about when you're talking with your friends like, oh, if we could just get to the New Testament and talk about Jesus, that'd be, be so much easier. We don't understand, we, we misunderstand the Old Testament and where God's at and, and why he has this this response that he does, this anger or this wrath, turn to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 34. When I first became a Christian and I was working at a summer camp, my boss said, he goes, I want you to study all the passages in the Bible that have to do with shepherds and sheep. Because you want to go into ministry someday, I want you to study all these passages. Psalm 23, John 10, Ezekiel 34. Listen to what, I'm going to read a big chunk of this, but listen to Ezekiel 34. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. So Jesus used to use that phrase of himself a lot. You're going to notice a lot of parallels here, okay? Came to me, he said, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel, the people in power, the people in influence, the ones responsible. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. 
prophesy and say to them, this is what the, the sovereign Lord says, woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, you clothe yourself with the wool, and you slaughter the choice animals. But you do not take care of the flock, those dependent on you, those needy. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord. Because my flock lacks a shepherd and has and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for the flock, therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds, and I will hold them accountable. You are hurting, either directly or indirectly, the sheep that are mine. I am against you. And then it goes on and it says this, For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them, as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them. So will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered. And then he goes on and says this, I myself will tend them and have them lie down. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice goes down and listen to this illusion of, of Christ. It says in verse 20, Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, the one who is over it all. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, the haves and the have-nots. Because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away. Many times the haves get their have at the expense of the have-nots. I will save my flock, and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, am the, I, the, uh, I the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So when you get to John 10 and Jesus talks about, I'm the good shepherd, and the bad shepherds do this, and I am the good shepherd, and I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. I'm, I'm reigning justly, and I'm taking care of the weak. I'm allowing all to flourish and to have peace and to know joy. 
that's where he's getting it from. So listen to how this ends. Verse 30, chapter 34 in Ezekiel. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them. And that they, the house of Israel, are my people. You, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, are people. And I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. He gets out of the analogy because he's, he's trying to personalize it. You know, last week when Kevin jumped into the audience and took Tyler, you know, he's saying, look, it, it, it's not real unless it gets to this level. It's all just distant talk unless it gets to this level. And God jumps out of the analogy and he says this, you, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, are people. I know you're a person. This isn't theoretical. I know you have hurts. I know you have pain. I know you have all of this stuff going on. And I'm talking about the shepherds not helping the sheep. And I'm talking about sheep being abused. And I know that's you. That's why I have wrath. That's why I'm angry. My anger is because I have love. You see, the degree of God's love for people is what is driving the degree of his wrath against people that are injuring those he loves. The degree of his love for people is driving the degree of his wrath against those who are injuring those who he loves. Do, do you get that? Turn, if you will, to Matthew. We don't normally look at this side of Jesus but we begin to understand when we understand what's going on in the God of the Old Testament. What, where wrath is coming from. Okay, where his love is placed. We begin to understand what righteous anger means. The phrase righteous anger is I'm angry because of some kind of injustice or unrighteousness that's going on. And so... Because I care about righteousness, because I care about justice, because I care about these things, I am filled with anger for what is right, what is good. Righteous anger. So listen to Jesus. Verse 13. Whoa, he's talking to these bad shepherds. He's talking to the leaders. He's talking to the people in power. He's talking to those in authority. He's talking to those who are supposed to be responsible for caring for others. In chapter 23, verse 13, Woe to you, teachers of the law and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who enter, uh, those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert to your tribe. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? 
he goes on and talks more about how people are spending their money and how they're perverting that. And then it comes to this in verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law. What are the more important matters of the law? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter. You should have given and, and ordered your life and, and felt good about yourself because you were out of your abundance like tithing and giving back. You should have done that. You could have done that. You could have felt good about yourself that way. That's not a bad thing. But you should have done it without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence, like those sheep, that, the fattened sheep that, that took advantage of others, Ezekiel 34. You clean out the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside also will be clean. You pray to God, you lay out your hands, you fast, you say, give me a new car, help me out in this situation. You're, you're, you're doing these things externally, but inside you're filled with self-indulgence. It's all about you. Love to you is a consumer good. I've got my life, I want to add love to it. Why wouldn't I? It only maximizes myself, which is what I really love. but you don't really care about these things. And God says, the kind of fasting, the kind of religion that I care about is over here. And so Jesus goes into the temple courts where people are making a profit and they're doing it at the expense of others at, at the center of, of the whole thing where the presence of God is supposed to be and people are supposed to come and meet God. They filled what was called the court of Gentiles with all their money trading and kind of selling of offerings. People would travel a long distance. They come, they have to have a dove or a lamb. They would buy it, but these guys are selling defective ones. They're selling them at inflated prices. But not only that, they're pushing out the outsiders. The Gentiles, the people that are like on the outside going, man, I want to know, I fear God, I know God's, I want to, learn more about God. I want to somehow come near to God. I'm hungry for God. They're supposed to have this place where they can come and fill up on the outer court of the temple. And instead, the leaders push that out and fill it with a marketplace. And Jesus comes in, goes and, and weaves together a whip, and comes and uses the whip on the people. Wrath. And he starts screaming prophecy from the prophets of the Old Testament saying, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. Uh, God doesn't just care about the sh you fancy people born into privilege, whatever, whatever. He cares about all people. The angels came and they said, this is good news. This is great joy for all people. God cares about them all and you are abusing the outsiders. So Jesus comes in and he's just filled with righteous anger. Out of what? Out of his love and concern 
for those who are being abused. There's no distinction between the God of the Old Testament and the God that we see in the flesh in Jesus Christ. This false dichotomy of God's the mean dad, Jesus is the cool son you can hang with, okay? That's a false distinction. In the time of the plague, Mary worship, Mariology, Mary, Mary veneration, the veneration of Jesus' mom uh, rose a lot. Kind of from a sociological perspective, you can see an increase in it because there was so much pain going on. And you pray to God, and you don't, you don't, nothing changes. The plague is still going. You pray to Jesus, and nothing changes. And you think, maybe the mother of Jesus will have more compassion. Will, will be filled with more compassion for us to see the weakness and, and the pain that we're going through and do something about it. It's a false distinction. God always fighting for those who are oppressed, for those who are weak. God is filled with love for all people. And he gets really angry when people are bullying other people. Or his leaders, who he has delegated authority and responsibility to, do not carry out what he has charged them to carry out. Instead, they use that, the personality that, that God has given them the gifts and the talents, the network, the relationship, he, they use those to self-propagate. There's a lot of you out there that know exactly what I'm talking about. You were born rich in a lot of things other than money. Network, family, smarts, gifts, talents, ability to discern trends. How much time do you spend during the week leveraging those gifts that God gave you to get ahead in life. To him who has been given much, much is expected. We need to find better causes than hating Xmas or working on our 401ks or re-getting rich because this economy took away our wealth. God gave us talents. He gave us the family we were born into. He gave us our education through various different means. And to him who has been given much, much is expected. So here's the deal. Let's draw this out. God cares about the weak a huge irony to Jesus' coming because he comes he comes to the weak and to the sick and to the poor and to the outsiders. That's why it's amazing when we see him in a shepherd. It's not, oh, look at the cute little baby Jesus. It's like, really? The Holy One of Israel has begun this earthly ministry in a manger? A trough in some sense? Where, where, where animals eat. He does it in weakness because he's saying, look, I care about this class of people that get ignored and I'm going to set the whole thing right because the people I delegate to authority don't do it right. And he comes the lowliest of lowly. And what is he tempted with in the first temptation by Satan? 
you really are over it all. You're really like over the world. You're really the king. You're, you really have all this power. Great, just take it. Take it. That was the temptation is to take what he could have taken, what he really is. And, and the ministry, though, is to say, no, I forego all that for the benefit of these people I love, that I can set all things right so that God can be with them. So listen, let's go a little further. So God comes, inserts himself, and says, I will send my servant David, the son of man, the, the, the son of God, and I will send him here. And he will intervene. I will break into space and time. Everything will be different. I will intervene. You know, it's really interesting. I was in Baltimore this week uh, at the World Relief Headquarters. And World Relief, it's really interesting when you talk to the program people. And these are like Johns Hopkins grads that are like just give their life, their whole life to things like orphans with HIV AIDS to figuring that out, to, to figure out how do you go into a third world context, a developing country, and, and gain some kind of traction in such an, on such an intractable issue as poverty and things like that. You don't, you don't understand what I'm saying? They give their whole life to trying to help in those situations. And you know what they call their programs? HIV, AIDS, maternal, maternal health, maternal um, care, uh, helping moms learn how to keep their babies from dying of disease. You know what they call those programs? It's really fascinating. They call them interventions. They call them interventions. They basically say, we're going to intervene, insert ourselves into a foreign context that's it's not our country, it's not our community. We're going to intervene in that community. Why? Because there's something so broken going on. There's something uh, wrong. There's something not the way it's supposed to be. So we're going to intervene with these interventions, these programs, these things that are supposed to try and bring about wholeness or, or healing or shalom, the way things are supposed to be, where you don't have AIDS orphans or little babies dying with their moms looking helplessly on because they don't know how to deal with it. Okay, So they're going to intervene to try and restore and fix what's going on. It's what the incarnation was. You have this broken world and it's, it's, it's this intractable situation and God intervenes and he gives his only son that his son would die so that this thing would get fixed. This intractable problem, this breaking of, of shalom, things aren't the way it's supposed to be and he's going to restore that. And then let's look at this next verse. In Luke twenty two nineteen, Jesus now says this. He says, as he's about to die, the lamb that in Revelation we talked about that opens the scroll that was worthy, the lamb that was slain, he says, um, this is my body. He takes bread, he takes the, the things that were a part of uh, the Old Testament Passover, and he takes these things, he says, now you're not thinking all the way back to Egypt in a, a literal lamb. You're thinking metaphorically to me, I'm dying that all people may live. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. God gave his son so that his son could give his, his life for the people that needed him most. He's doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Uh, and then he says, Jesus says, when you remember me, 
you do this. You do this in remembrance of me. So I, I once, like when I was really young, like in my early 20s, I preached this message on Christmas Eve and ruined Christmas for everybody. I was just like, it's not Christmas. It's communion. This is where Jesus said to remember him. You know, of course, you know, 20s, my tone was all wrong. It, you know, as we read passages that are in Scripture, it's a part of the story. It's a part of the narrative. But there's an interesting thing about stories. You don't usually fixate on the beginning, do you? When I ask you about the Lord of the Rings trilogy or name a good book. Some, I'm drawing a blank. Huck Finn, I don't know. Like, you, you don't go, wow, that, that the page eight was amazing. It was so good. Page eight was the best page eight I've ever read. You know, like, all of this is usually setting up a plot line that comes to a climax and then resolves itself. And the resolution has a redemptiveness, a redemptive quality to it. And, and this is the heart of the whole story, right? You know what I'm talking about? That's the part of the story you remember. And Jesus is saying, look, me coming and being born and being in a manger. And, and I mean, there's all, this, there's all these different things. And growing up under Mary and Joseph and learning carpentry. And, you know, that's all part of the story. But I came for this moment. This is the heart of it. This is the main thing. And so now when you take the Passover, when you come together as a community and you remember that God intervenes, God intervenes, God cares about you, you're remembering this, you're remembering me, you're remembering what I'm doing right now. It's God's intervention. So then you get this interesting thing in uh, this next passage, John 16, 7. Jesus says this to his disciples, really paradoxical thing. He says this, Verily I say to you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, the Holy, what we call the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus is like, man, I came as a man so that I could die as a man. Remember that. But if I stay as a man, I can't be with all the believers, with, with all the people that have this relationship with God because now the, the, the separation between God and man is gone. The, a whole different thing there, but the, the temple ha always had a veil separating God who's holy from us who were not 100% pure or whatever. Jesus died so that that could go away and we could have a relationship with God that was dynamic and new. And he's saying, I got to go away so that God can send the Holy Spirit that will be with the believers. You I mean, you get the storyline. So God is now saying, look, is the world still broken? Have you ever had pain in your life? Yes, it is not yet the end of time. The angels spoke here. They sing here. This is not yet the end of time. We're in the middle where there's pain. What's going to happen? God sends his Holy Spirit. You know what the, the biggest part of your pain solution kit ought to be? 
not running in and like grabbing a band-aid, but the biggest part of your pain solution kit is remembering this, that God has intervened. He is intervening. He will again intervene. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. God has not forsaken us. God intervenes. And you want to know what's even crazier? Listen to this parallel that gets set up with Jesus with these words. He now says, uh, I got to leave so that I can send the Holy Spirit. And then he says this to us. He says, I'm going to send you. I'm going to send you peace be with you. Now as the Father has sent me, I am going to send you. God intervened by giving me I gave my life. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. Now as God intervened and and sent me that whole story, I'm now sending you to go intervene. You go do what I did for you. You do for others what they cannot do for themselves. You show concern to people. You don't treat them like categories. You break it down in the end and say, this thing we're calling people, that's you. This category we're calling oppressed, that's those people in the Congo or Haiti or down the street. There's one group of people at Cascade Village saying, we'll wrap your Christmas presents for you for a fee. There's another guy at the exit saying, I'm hungry. It's a paradox there. And Jesus is saying, okay, I've intervened. Because God loves and I love. Now, as I've done for you so that you would have peace, so that things will be as they ought to be, and and you've got this relationship with God now, now you go. So we, as we're going through here, even in our pain, we we go. And we love. It's, It's so simple, this whole thing with God. If we think we need a car for our 16th birthday, though, and God's not answering quick enough, literally a decade can go by with us wrestling with questions like, does God really answer prayer? I have to wait on God. God's really slow. I have to wait on him so much. He doesn't hear my many prayers. You know, God doesn't really help in my life. I gotta kind of figure this stuff out. We can spend a whole decade wasted on ourselves trying to, you know what I'm saying? Because God's like, I don't hear your many prayers. I don't even understand your, your heart, your self-indulgence that you think the world revolves. I don't understand that. Don't you know I intervened on your behalf? Don't you know that I'm there for you anytime you want me to? If you would just cry out with a humble heart, blessed are the poor in spirit. And, and don't you realize that this wonderful joy of reaching people that are lost and helping restore them is where you and I will co-labor and where we will be the closest in our relationship because we're working together. Don't you know that's where you're going to be the happiest? Why won't you just accept what I did for you and think that that's enough and go with me now into this world and reach people? We can waste a decade or two. There's some of you here. I've wasted years before. Anyone else wasted years with that whole, how do I get God to give me what I want cycle? I've wasted years of my life like that. 
And I begin to think God's cold and angry and drunk. Love is not a commodity. I love Christmas because it combines the birth of Christ, the beginning of this inter- intervention, and it, com- it combines it with the end of the story, the heart of the matter where Jesus gave his life for us. Let's turn there, but John sixteen thirty three. This is right after Jesus promises the Holy Spirit, the passage I read to you. Let's listen to how he ends that chapter. John 16. We're going to close with this, and the band is going to come up and sing one song. I want us to sing that song with everything we've got. And then we're going to have an invitation. You're going to be free to dismiss after that. I'll come up and share this again. But you're also going to have an opportunity to come take communion if you choose to. But listen to how he ends this. He ends chapter 16 where he's talking to his disciples right before he dies. He's like, man, I'm not going to be with you guys anymore. Can you imagine if you're dying what you would say to your kids? I've thought about that before. Like, literally, if I had just a month to die, what would I say to my nine-year-old? What would I say to my seven-year-old? Like, what would I... I would try and just leave them with as much as I could. Jesus is saying, look, the Holy Spirit's going to come and your, your grief will turn to joy. It's, it's okay that way. And then he says at the end, now here's the whole deal. Because this is the last thing he says to his disciples. Then he goes off and prays, and then he gets taken. And he says this, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I say these things to you because it's going to be gnarly. You're still in this age of suffering and, and, and it's going to be painful. You're going to be confused, but take heart in me, in this intervention, in being with God You'll have peace because I've overcome the world. I dove down to the bottom of the pile and fixed the whole deal. So angels said here, but it is guaranteed that they will sing here. And when you take communion, you look back to when I died. You're in the present, being in the center of that focal point, And you're also looking forward to the hope that we have that I will come back. So communion is this unbelievable blending of past, present, and future where all of it gets reoriented so that we have the right perspective that God intervenes on behalf of those he loves. He has done it. He is doing it. He will do it again. And so when we come here, we take that and we go, this is how God intervenes. He gives his son. He sends his spirit And then frankly, he uses us to intervene on behalf of others because that's his program, because he's got a big heart, because he cares. That's the story.